Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Naren, and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. On the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be continuing on from our previous episode, talking about some of the special circumstances that occur with opioid substitution therapy and our approaches to these scenarios. So Fergal, something that we get asked a bit about is how do you deal with patients who've got liver damage or hepatic impairment and how do you judge which dose of methadone to start them on or how to get a patient stable on methadone in a patient with significant liver damage? So first of all, it's really important to understand what happens to methadone. So it it gets metabolized by the liver to inactive metabolites, which then get excreted by the kidney. And then separate to that, there is also a certain amount of methadone that is excreted by the kidneys unchanged. And that proportion is, of course, dependent on urinary pH. Now, first of all, it's important to understand which enzymes uh, metabolize methadone, and it's the CYP system. And for those who are doing exams, it's CYP3A4, which metabolizes 50% of all drugs. Then it's CYP2B6, 2D6, 2C9, 2C19. The main principal metabolite that is, and all inactive, all metabolites are inactive. The main one is EDDP. So, So basically, you need to think about an active drug that is basically metabolized to an inactive metabolite by the liver, and that's that's how methadone behaves in the body. Therefore, if you've got hepatic impairment, you affect potentially the plasma concentration of methadone. So studies have been done which demonstrate actually that the kinetics of uh, methadone are unchanged in even up to moderate cirrhosis. So in mild to moderate cirrhosis, the kinetics are unchanged. However, if you are, and, and, and if you maintain patients on methadone, you can maintain them on very high doses of methadone in liver disease if they are stable without decompensated liver disease. Now, what does decompensation mean? Now, there are a number of physical and clinical parameters that, that suggest someone's going to go into decompensated liver disease. So someone who's jaundiced, someone with ascites, someone with varices, someone with encephalopathy, someone with a paterenal syndrome, someone with um, any, of the, any of those conditions or even the child pew uh, parameters, if they've got uh, evidence of those problems, then you're not dealing with someone who's stable. You're not dealing with someone who does not have uh, decompensated liver disease. Therefore, you need to be very, very careful at the, at the dose that you're using. And I would suggest actually uh, rapidly weeding down the dose in those situations, if not ceasing it in, in an emergency situation where someone presents with encephalopathy and they're on like 90 to 100 milligrams of methadone, I would stop the methadone because it's better to have someone in withdrawal but alive rather than dead. The next issue then is titration. You know, how do you start someone who presents to you with, uh, uh, with say active heroin use disorder, but significant hepatic impairment? perhaps secondary to active HCV infection. How do you start someone on methadone? And Philippe, what would you say to that? So I think in a situation like that, it's important to start low and kind of go slow. So you could potentially consider halving the starting dose that one would normally start someone at. So consider maybe instead of a starting dose at, at 30, consider 20, or even if you're feeling particularly cautious, you could go uh, even a bit below that at 15 if if you were really being quite cautious. 
You could um, halve the usual dose rise as well. So instead of increasing by 10 milligrams, you could increase by five and you could monitor the dose for a longer time period as well. So those would be the steps that I would take in in someone with significant hepatic impairment. And if I was concerned that they could become quite sedated with the dose of methadone that I was going to give them, those would be the principles that I would use to ensure that I was not putting this patient at increased risk of sedation and then respiratory depression. Yeah, absolutely. Go low, start low, go slow. It really is so true in uh, hepatic impairment, isn't it? What about the situation in renal impairment? What would you do for that? So generally, if someone... One, one's got to think about the, the, the mechanics of, of methadone and renal impairment. So 20% of methadone is excreted in, in the urine unchanged and, and most of um, methadone is, is metabolized by, by the liver. So generally, it's pretty safe to consider methadone or continue methadone at its, at its normal dose in chronic kidney disease as well. So it's, and I've certainly seen patients who've been in significant renal impairment be maintained on their usual dose of of methadone. But you do still have to be cautious about um, inducting someone on methadone in, in renal impairment. So that would probably be the time period I'd be quite cautious about. But if someone's already on methadone and develops uh, an acute kidney injury or something along those lines, sure, I would monitor them. And usually, by definition, these patients would probably be in hospital anyway. So that would be a time period for, for, for appropriate monitoring. But adjusting the dose is not necessary in, in this situation, provided there's no significant liver impairment simultaneously, in which case this is a different scenario. Is that, is that a fair statement, Virgil? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, maintenance of stable patients in, in uh, kidney impairment is okay. I mean, we know, for instance, that in the absolutely aneuric patient, methadone is excreted fecally. So it's a bit like doxycycline in that situation. And, uh, you know, just like you, I've, I've had experience of treating patients who are on renal replacement therapy on dialysis who are maintained on up to 90 to 100 milligrams of methadone perfectly safely. The key thing, as, as is the case with uh, liver disease, the key thing is a cautious induction. Start low, go slow. Um, you don't want to risk accidental accumulation and toxicity. Absolutely. And now moving on to, to Suboxone, what's your approach to patients in, in these scenarios, Virgil, who might have hepatic or renal impairment? Does, does your thought process or management change at all? Yeah, so buprenorphine is a different drug. It's metabolized by the liver into various products of buprenorphine 3-glucuronide. And um, these glucuronides and buprenorphine itself are then um, excreted by the liver. And so, and, and that's in biliary excretion. So really buprenorphine is contraindicated in severe liver disease and you really do have to seek specialist advice to actually induct onto buprenorphine. And the titration has got to be slow and cautious. Whereas previously in, in, in patients without significant liver disease, we would re- escalate the dose of buprenorphine very quickly. So within three days, you could end up on 16, 24 milligrams of, of buprenorphine. That's just not the case with buprenorphine in patients with hepatic impairment. And again, it's go slow and cautious. And Fergal, going through renal impairment, what are your 
considerations with someone on Suboxone? So again, we need to know that you know buprenorphine is hepatically metabolized, and there is a urinary, urinary excretion of the inactive metabolites a little bit. Um, but you know, for the most part, the um, the excretion of metabolites and buprenorphine is via the biliary tract. So generally speaking, buprenorphine is considered safe for chronic kidney disease. But again, in someone with acute renal impairment, I would still be I would still emphasize caution because whilst buprenorphine itself may not be affected by um, by renal impairment, renal impairment itself can contribute to a potential loss of tolerance to the hypnosedative, the accumulated hypnosedative effect of multiple hypnosedating drugs that the patient may be on. So you still have to be cautious. Absolutely. Now, the next question is probably quite a vexed question, and it's a question I get asked all the time, and it's a question about polypharmacy. And how do you manage a patient who is, in addition to being on prescribed opioid use disorder, being on other prescribed medications, such as hypnosedative medications, or other medications that can cause respiratory depression or other, say, drugs of addiction? Mm. And this is always the question that I get asked from fellow GPs as well as from colleagues in the hospital, and it's always the one that, that causes m the most gnashing of teeth, per se. Uh, what's, what's your yeah. thoughts, Virgil, on, on, on this complicated issue? Well, it, it, can, it boils down to this question. How close to the cliff edge are you prepared to drive your car? You know, the more yep. hypnosedative load you have, and the more vulnerable the patient is but for, because of concomitant uh, disease, the more likely you are to actually drive to the cliff edge and, if, and then therefore potentially dr drive over the cliff edge and kill your patient. Um, so really, you know, I don't advocate the use of polypharmacy and combinations of hypnosedatives in patients. I, I, I spend a lot of time, as I'm sure you do, weaning patients off uh, hypnosedative drugs, including benzodiazepines. And I think it's important to understand that opioids impair what we call the hypercarbic drive. So when we stop breathing, carbon dioxide accumulates in our lungs, then accumulates in our blood, and then goes to our brain to stimulate our brains to start breathing again. Opioids reduce that effect. And when we've got high doses of opioids on board, we are therefore dependent to a certain extent on our hypoxic drive, which is a backup system. And so basically when we don't breathe enough, we then lose oxygen. And then when we, and then that deficit in oxygen then stimulates us to breathe again. And that's a backup system because the primary system is the hypercarbic drive. But benzodiazepines impair the hypoxic drive. So you can probably get away with one toxicity but the combination of both impairment of, of hypercarbic drive and hypoxic drive is potentially lethal. So you've got to understand it's the combination of drugs, it's the combination of cofactors that will actually kill a patient. It's usually not just due to one issue. Absolutely. And as we've talked about on many episodes, the main thing that guides our prescribing is safety and you've got to be safe when you prescribe and polypharmacy increases the risk of death for, for the patient and it is unsafe. Yeah. So we are duty bound to try and make sure we stay as far away from that cliff as, as humanly possible uh, to, for both our patient's safety and, and also to make sure that we're prescribing ethically. Yeah. Now, 
another question that I get more so in the hospital system than, than in general practice land is when you have a patient who is on opioid substitution therapy and they develop a condition uh, that causes acute pain, so say they get acute abdominal pain or have a fractured limb, and the, the statement I often get is, oh, the patients on methadone, uh, they already have their pain relief. They don't really need any more. And we're probably going to get them addicted onto some other opioid. So why don't we just keep the patient on, on their usual dose of, of methadone? Fergal, yeah. do you, have a, do you yeah. have a thoughts about this? I have lots of thoughts on this. So there are a number of myths, and I think we'll have to go through each myth. The first myth is that opioid substitution therapy provides adequate analgesia. That's a myth. What do you think about that, uh, Philippe? Absolutely. Opioid substitution therapy is opioid substitution therapy. We're using it to treat opioid use disorder. We're not using it to treat acute pain. So the rationale, the reason why we're doing this is, is not an analgesic effect. It is to treat opioid use disorder. So if someone with opioid use disorder develops acute pain, they should be treated for acute pain. Uh, that's my thoughts yeah. on the matter, and I'm sure yeah. your thoughts are pretty similar to that. So I think if we don't if we don't treat acute pain in the context of uh, um, opioid substitution therapy, we can run the risk of relapse, and we can also inappropriately dose patients causing respiratory depression, or the patients may relapse and dose on heroin and then go into respiratory depression. You've got to understand that the anti-craving effect of opioid substitution therapy lasts 12, 24 hours or more. The analgesic effect of these opioids, which we use in opioid substitution therapy, may only last six to eight hours, six to 12 hours. So one of the first things that I do when I'm dealing with acute nociceptive pain in the context of opioid substitution therapy is to basically split dose. So instead of having a once daily dose, say, of 90 milligrams of methadone, I would prescribe 30 milligrams TDS. So you're getting the analgesic benefit uh, throughout the day. Or in the case of buprenorphine, say um, um, 24 milligrams daily of buprenorphine, I would give eight milligrams three times a day. And then on top of that, I would prescribe appropriate doses of short-acting opioids targeted to their pain. But bear in mind that someone who's, op who's on opioid substitution therapy is by definition physiologically opioid dependent and opioid tolerance. And therefore, you have to expect that they're going to need higher doses for more time to deal with the same degree of nociceptive pain as compared to someone who is not opioid tolerant. Absolutely. And the, the question I sometimes get asked as well is less so with methadone, more so for buprenorphine. Um, it, it seems like there's a, a lot of confusion with buprenorphine. And when someone's on Suboxone, the question is, what can we possibly give this patient because they're on such a high dose of buprenorphine? Do you have any thoughts on, yeah. on that, Fergal? Yeah, um, I can remember my own clinical behavior evolving. I, I remember basically advocating the cessation of buprenorphine to allow space for full agonists to work. Now I don't bother. I say to people, I say to clinicians, just ignore the buprenorphine, give them whatever acute pain and relief they want. Uh, bear in mind, they're going to be opioid tolerant. And if you use certain drugs like oxycodone, you're going to have to use more drugs than you would expect. There is this issue of whether or not you use uh, drugs which are able to compete with buprenorphine at the mu receptor, and these are called superagonists. So under appropriate uh, supervision and in appropriate clinical circumstances, instead of using you know oral oxycodone, you might want to use fentanyl, 
morphine or hydromorphone. And these are drugs that are more likely to compete with buprenorphine at that mu receptor. But in clinical practice, you can get away with using higher than usual doses of oxycodone, so long as the patient is monitored. I mean, going back to the myths, I mean, there are another couple of myths that, that we, need to, we need to address, and that's, you know, op use, pain, pain relief or requests for pain relief in patients with opioid use disorder represent drug seeking. What do you think of that? Uh, it's absolutely not drug seeking behavior. It's someone asking for appropriate analgesia when they're in pain. So a lot of our yeah. patients are used to being stigmatized and they're used to be treated poorly. And in any situation, when you've fractured your leg or you've got an acute abdomen and you request pain relief, most of the time, I'd like to think 10 times out of 10 in a hospital, you'd be, be getting that um, pain relief if you asked for it. So it's not drug-seeking behavior. Yeah. It's a normal response to a normal physical stimuli. So it's, it's absolutely not drug-seeking yeah. behavior. And also uh, to yeah. add on to that, uh, our patients may ask for more analgesia because, as you've mentioned, they're opioid tolerant. So they will actually require more analgesia to get an adequate response. So this is not drug-seeking behavior. This is someone requesting appropriate treatment for a condition. That's my, my view anyway. I, I think you agree with that, Virgil. I would totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Perfect. So in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've done the second of our two-part on the special circumstances surrounding opioid substitution therapy. We've talked about how to manage patients with hepatic and renal impairment, how to manage polypharmacy concerns, and how to manage pain with patients who are on opioid substitution therapy. So it's been another pretty action-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thank you again for your time and attention, and bye for now. Music